We'll be reading out of the book of 1 Corinthians, the uh, Blue Pew Bibles, that is uh, page 958. It is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 through chapter 11, verse 1. Again, that is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23 <coughs> through chapter 11, verse 1. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for the word that has just been read, and we ask for your Holy Spirit to come to minister to each and every one of us by taking your word, and as it is preached, by applying it to our hearts, by pricking our consciences as need be, and by leading us as to how we ought to apply your truth into our lives. We pray this for your glory and for the good of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as many of you know, we are in a sermon series that is focused on the topic of the conscience. We're trying to develop a biblical theology of the conscience. We're talking about that, that voice in your head that tells you right from wrong. You know, since we've started this series, my wife and I have been noticing talk of the conscience in all kinds of places. We saw Toy Story 4 last weekend, and there Woody was teaching Buzz about following your inner voice, about listening to your conscience. Now, in humorous fashion, Buzz confused his inner voice with the pre-recorded messages inside of him as a toy, triggered by the buttons on his suit, and he would just kind of press the buttons until he got the, the, the message that he wanted. It's silly, but it does reflect the reality that we are generally confused about the conscience. And it helps to shed as much light and as much clarity as we can on this subject. Because based on good conversations I've been having with, with uh, many of you in the past few weeks, it's clear to me that further clarification is continually needed. Like, so for example, one important clarification is to say that the inner voice is not the Holy Spirit's voice. 
Your conscience is actually a part of you. It's your inner voice, and it it testifies. It bears witness to the truthfulness of God and to the rightness of His law. That's why we've been calling uh, the conscience uh, God's witness in your soul. It's His testimony in you. It's important and to make this distinction, we, we need to distinguish the conscience from the Holy Spirit because this topic is not just a topic relevant for Christians. Everyone has a conscience. And so that means you can appeal to that inner voice when you are talking to those who are not Christians, who don't have the Holy Spirit in them. Unless they're a true sociopath, everyone has a conscience that will prick and prod, that will accuse and excuse, that will comfort and convict. The conscience is part of the image of God that all of us bear. Now, of course, if you are a Christian and you do have the Holy Spirit in you, well, then be grateful that He's there to help calibrate your conscience and He's there to to use your conscience as a means to accuse or to excuse you of wrongdoing. And that leads to another clarification we need to make. The conscience really only deals with the category of right and wrong. Its job is not to help you make decisions about what school to apply for or who you should marry or whether you should take that position or which investment you should choose. That's the job of spirit-led biblical wisdom. The conscience, well, the conscience really only has two speeds, right or wrong, guilty or not guilty, black or white. It doesn't handle shades of gray very well. It'll either accuse or excuse you. So if you're therefore trying to consult the conscience uh, to help you make a decision, really make sure that it's one that deals with right or wrong. If you're looking for advice on how to choose between good, better, and best, well, then you shouldn't be looking to your conscience. The conscience deals with good or bad, right or wrong. I know it sounds very straightforward, sounds very simple, but of course we know that when you're dealing with the conscience, it's, it's not that easy. Issues of conscience are complicated because even though we each have only two speeds, we have different interpretations of the speed limit. That means that we all have different interpretations of what's right or wrong. And that really leads us to this morning's topic. We want to talk about what happens when our consciences clash with each other. What do we do when we do not agree on issues uh, of right and wrong, especially within a Christian community? There are a number of issues that well-meaning Christians will disagree on, even in our church. So let's consider just a few examples. Recently, we had gone through the book of Exodus. We studied the Ten Commandments, and there we had considered the question of whether Christians are still obligated to observe the Sabbath. There are different Christians with different opinions on whether that's still binding to us and what that looks like. Our consciences could also clash about whether a Christian can vote for this candidate or support that political party or whether it's right or wrong to attend that same-sex wedding or to call that person by their preferred name or pronoun. 
Or maybe it's a question if Christians should play poker or vacation in Vegas or drink alcohol or smoke or get a tattoo. Or maybe, maybe our consciences clash over whether we should vaccinate our children or celebrate Halloween or homeschool our kids. Now, if any of those issues caught your attention and you're thinking, how is that controversial? Like, it's so obvious what's right. Of course, a Christian should do fill in the blank. Well, friends, that that just goes to show how much we really need to talk about this. Because the fact is that that your conscience of what's right and wrong won't necessarily match up with other Christians, even those within this room. So if we want to maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit in our church, then what we need, friends, is a robust theology of the conscience that allows for us to respectfully disagree with each other when our consciences don't match up. And so what I want to do this morning is to walk through a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that deals with clashing consciences. And what I want to hopefully provide for us is four considerations Four considerations when our consciences clash. If you want to follow along, you'll see an outline in your bulletin. So let's, let's go through these four considerations. The first is this. We need to consider what kind of conscience that we personally have. According to the Apostle Paul, it could be either weak or strong. You can have a weak conscience or a strong conscience. That's the kind of language he uses in 1 Corinthians. In this morning's passage, Paul is in particular addressing the issue of eating meat, eating food that has been sacrificed to idols. Now, I know for us, it doesn't sound very relevant, but it was a very pressing issue for the Corinthian church. In fact, they were actually the ones raising this question with Paul in a previous letter that they wrote to him. So starting in chapter 7 of Corinthians, he begins to address some of these issues that they had brought up. So whenever you see um, the phrase, Paul, Paul using the phrase, now concerning this or concerning that, you find that in chapter 7 verse 1, uh, ch- chapter 8 verse 1. When you see that phrase, it's signaling that he is now responding to a specific matter that they brought up in that earlier letter. Now, our passage, we're looking at chapter 10, verse 23, all the way to 11, verse 1, but it's actually part of a larger unit that starts all the way back in chapter 8, verse 1. So I actually want you to turn your attention and flip your Bible to chapter 8, verse 1, and notice it says, now concerning food offered to idols. So that's the main issue here. But from the text, we can identify two sub-issues that are related but still distinct. So both had to do with eating food, or meat in particular, that had been previously offered up in sacrifice to a pagan idol, to some Greek god or goddess. Now, only a portion of the animal was actually used in the sacrifice, and so the rest of it was still fit for consumption. So most temples had a side business going on that essentially functioned like a butcher shop, and they would sell this extra meat in, in, in the meat market. Now, remember the Corinthian church was comprised mostly of Gentiles, and so the majority of them were converted out of a pagan background where they likely grew up 
normally buying their meat from the meat market in these temples. So one controversial issue that arose in the early church had to do with whether it was right or wrong for Christians to still shop at these temple meat markets, since the meat, of course, was associated with idol worship. Apparently, there were some who thought it was totally fine, while others considered it to be idolatrous and wrong for a Christian to do. Now, there's also a second sub-issue here, because back then, it was also very common for trade guilds to conduct feasts at these pagan temples. So there was typically a dining hall attached to these temples where people would eat after their sacrifices were, being, were made, all the extra meat was then prepared for a big feast to enjoy together. And likewise, a number of these Corinthians, before their conversion, they would have attended these temple feasts as part of their work. It's just part of their work life as they're associated with these various trade guilds. And so if you're a mason, it's totally normal to attend the feast put on by the masonry guild. And to avoid going would potentially cost you future business and, and business connections. And so that's just part of the normal routine for them to attend pre-conversion. Well, now they're converted. What do they do? So there was another controversy regarding whether it was right or wrong to still attend these temple feasts and eat food, sacrifice to idols in the direct context of idol worship. So that's what's going on here. Now, if you look with me at chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 1 to 3, apparently there were those in the church still attending those temple feasts associated with their trade guild. And they were justifying their behavior based on their Christian knowledge. Now that they're Christians, they just know better. They know idols aren't real. They know there's really no such thing as Apollo or Athena. You know, they're just statues. They know that there's only one true God, and his name is Jesus. So while their pagan friends consider this feast to be, you know, some form of worship to that god or goddess, to them, it's just a good meal. And it's, you know, perhaps a witnessing opportunity with my non-Christian co-workers. Well, how does Paul respond to that? Well, initially, initially he acknowledges that they, they are right. That they are right that idols are nothing. So look at verse 4. Um, he says in verse 4, chapter 8, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know, you're right, that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. So Paul agrees with those who are writing to him that idols are non-entities, so eating food, sacrifice to idols, should be a non-issue. He even goes on in verse 7 to describe that those who don't hold this position as having weak consciences. Uh, look in verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak, so this is the category here, their conscience is weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. 
So Paul here has this category for Christians with weak consciences. And of course, by inference, there are those who have strong consciences. Now, at first glance, it looks like Paul is using these labels of weak and strong in order to make value judgments, declaring some Christians to be better or more spiritual than others because they have a strong conscience. But really, friends, that doesn't fit the context of Paul's argument and this letter as a whole. Because the problem in 1 Corinthians is that those who wrote their letter to Paul, they saw themselves as more spiritual than others, and Paul was actually confronting their arrogance. So he's clearly not siding with those that have stronger consciences. If anything, he's actually rebuking them. So when Paul speaks of those who have a weak conscience, it's not an insult. He's not speaking down to them. By weak, he just means the individual's conscience is easily wounded. It's hypersensitive to things of right and wrong, particularly when it comes to this issue of eating food sacrificed previously to idols. So to have a weak conscience, according to Paul, means that your position your, your, the conviction you have is theologically uninformed. You don't possess a particular knowledge, um, as, as, as he references in verse 7. And so that's why your conscience is restricting you on this issue. It's telling you that it's wrong, that it's sinful for you to participate or to partake, or whatever it is. So l- let me come up with an example. An example where I think... I think I'm pretty sure all of us would be uh, together on the same page. Let's imagine a Christian whose conscience tells him that it's wrong to drink coffee. Why? Well, because coffee is a stimulant with addictive qualities. And Paul says in chapter 6, verse 12, that all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated, or in some translations, I will not be mastered by anything. So this hypothetical brother concludes that it would be disobedient to God's word to partake of anything that is addictive and that could have mastery over you. So you can't drink coffee. Well, that would be an example, in our opinion, of having a weak conscience. We would say that he's interpreting the text out of context. He's misapplying uh, this principle to the issue of coffee drinking, and that a more theologically informed position would permit you to do so. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that those who drink coffee are better Christians or smarter or more spiritual. That's not what we mean. It just means that your conscience is stronger on this issue, and you wouldn't be wounded if you saw someone drinking coffee or if you were to actually do it yourself. So, to have a strong conscience on a particular issue simply means that your position is more theologically informed. So, like those, those Corinthians who were writing to Paul, you possess some knowledge in the Word that frees you to partake in this or that activity because you see it as either it's a morally good thing or it's just morally neutral. It's because of your your understanding of God's Word, your submission to its authority, you now have a conscience that is strong and not bothered by participating in this 
whatever it is, drinking coffee in this example. So let's, let's summarize here the difference. Those with weaker consciences tend to have very sensitive consciences that some would argue are too strict and too easily wounded and offended. Well, those, on the other hand, with stronger consciences tend to have less sensitive consciences that some would argue are too loose or too callous or lenient. So that's, that's the difference. And, if you, and, and the point is that if you find yourself in a situation where your conscience is clashing with someone else, especially with a fellow church member that you are in a covenant relationship with, you've got to consider what kind of conscience do I have? Of course, of course, we, we all naturally assume, oh, you know, I, I've got the stronger one, right? That's that's because again, I think we're still treating these terms as if it's a value judgment, as if one is better than the other. But Paul just means that one conscience tends to feel more restricted from doing things, that's the weak one, while the other conscience feels more free to do things, and that's the strong one. So it's not about being spiritually better than the other. Either kind of conscience has room to grow, and either kind of conscience has need for correction. And that leads to our second consideration. We need to consider how our conscience, whether it's weak or it's strong, may need some calibration. It may need some correction. Maybe my conscience is too strict, or maybe it is too loose. And just like how you need to calibrate a scale every so often as when it get, goes off, then you constantly need to be calibrating your conscience. Weaker consciences that are too strict and burdened by, by too many rules may need to subtract some of these rules from their consciences. They need to subtract some convictions. That's what Paul would say to the Christian whose conscience says it's a sin to eat meat sold in that meat market associated with the temple. He would suggest that's, that, that, um, that some things need to be subtracted from that brother's conscience, starting with this very restrictive stance against eating meat from the meat market, even if it had been previously a part of a sacrifice. So listen with me. Let's go back to chapter 10, and let's look in verse 25, and Paul addresses it directly. Chapter 10, verse 25, he says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. In other words, don't let your conscience be bothered by this. And he gives the same advice in verse 27 if you are a guest in someone's house. Look at verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Now, he's not saying, don't ask where the meat came from because ignorance is bliss. That's, that's not his point. He's actually saying, it truly doesn't matter. And he gives, he already gave his reason why in verse 26 for the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. That's a quote from Psalm 24, verse 1. His point is that you are free to enjoy meat regardless of where it came from, whether the temple or the ranch, because all of it comes from the same source. It comes from our Creator, our God. So, so some of us have 
to consider here the very real possibility that we, with our weak consciences, are even stricter than God, that we have more rules in our conscience than God does in his word. That's a possibility if we, have, if we tend to have weaker consciences. But then, of course, there are Christians whose consciences are stronger, as in rarely bothered, mainly because their consciences are more informed by the word. But, you know, even so, even so, there's a possibility that even those with stronger consciences are missing some important biblical convictions that are allowing them to be too lenient and tolerant towards sin. So, those with stronger consciences may need to add some convictions. And Paul made this argument prior to our passage. It's related to that second sub-issue that I had brought up earlier, you know, about eating sacrificed meat, not just sold in the meat market, but we're talking about eating it together at a temple feast in the context of worshiping that idol. That, Paul says, is just wrong to do for a Christian, and it's spiritually dangerous. Even if you possess that knowledge that those idols aren't real, they're just carved images, you should still avoid associating with idolatry because demons who are very real are behind all idols, all forms of idol worship. So look with me in chapter 10, verse 19, right before our passage, Paul says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Of course, he already said, those things are non-entities, right? But verse 20, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So his point is, just as participating at the Lord's table fellowships you with Christ and with Christ's people, participating in these temple feasts with your trade guild, even though you're just, you're just there to, to hang out with your coworker and maybe you know, try to build a relationship with him, well, still, you're in a worship service, worshiping this idol, and that is fellowshipping you with the devil and his demons. So eating meat sacrificed to idols is itself permissible, and that's why you can do it if it's being sold in the meat market. That's neither good nor bad, but uh, and, and, and verse 8, Paul says, we're no worse off if we do eat, we're no better off if we do. But, of course, he's going on to say, in certain scenarios, an activity that is morally neutral in itself could, in that context, violate Scripture and therefore be wrong for Christians to participate in. So, eating in a temple feast dedicated to an idol is just one of those scenarios, and those Corinthians need to add that conviction onto their consciences. So let me offer, of course, a more contemporary example for us. I realize there are some with weaker consciences that they may say that Christians should not drink alcohol at all. In any form of alcohol, you should, you know, just, just don't, don't drink it. It's wrong. Uh, it's called teetotalism. That, that, that's, that's, that's a conviction. And, and I, I realize that there is that um, uh, uh, belief. Now, but even for those 
who have stronger consciences that free them to drink alcohol in moderation, they still need to recognize that in certain scenarios, that drinking would be wrong. So, for example, if you were drinking underage, that would be wrong. You would be violating Romans 13 and being submissive to our governing authorities. If that drinking led you into the context of a state of drunkenness, again, that would be wrong. It violates clear teachings against drunkenness in Scripture. So the same activity, though it is permissible in certain situations, it will become prohibited in that particular context. So those who have stronger consciences on drinking should really do some reflection here. Those who feel liberated to drink without raising any questions of conscience are at the same time You have to just be open to this and to consider that you are at the same time at the risk of being too lenient towards situations of drunkenness. Do you often find yourself excusing your behavior by telling people, I wasn't drunk, I was just buzzed? Really, is there that big of a difference there? Let's be clear. I'm not trying to Bind your conscience if you believe you are free in Christ to drink alcohol with thankfulness to Christ. But at least be open to the possibility that your conscience may be too loose in this area and you have been tolerating drunkenness in your life or in your Christian's friends. But again, of course, guys, the point is that whether your conscience is weak or strong on an issue, You have to keep going back to Scripture to see what it does say and it doesn't say about it. You don't want your conscience to be stricter or to be looser than Scripture. You need to keep calibrating it using God's Word. So let's let's turn to our fourth consideration when consciences clash. Let's consider how your conscience, whether weak or strong, may lead you to sin against another who holds a different conscience. Uh, Actually, this is our our third consideration. Uh, Weak and strong consciences may have different tendencies in harming the other. So those with weak consciences that restrict them and prick them quite frequently, their tendency is to grow judgmental, to denounce other Christians for being ungodly or going liberal. So we, we see Paul alluding to this tendency of weak consciences in chapter 10, verse 30. Starting in verse 29, he questions why we would allow someone else's conscience to determine my liberty, what I believe I am free to do and to enjoy in Christ. And so look in verse, um, uh, verse 29. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience. Verse 30, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So there's a tendency among those with stricter, weaker consciences to denounce and to judge those who have looser, uh, stronger consciences. So if, friends, you, f- you find yourself quite often in a situation where you're just aghast at how Christians these days can be so, so worldly, and these Christians around you seem to not care as much as, about holiness as you do, well, that could be true, 
Or consider the possibility that maybe the problem doesn't lie so much in them, but in you and the weakness of your conscience. So just consider that. But at the same time, those with stronger consciences have their own sinful tendencies that they have to deal with. Their tendency, unlike the weaker one, which is to grow judgmental, their tendency is to grow arrogant, to look down on those who have weaker consciences, because we think we know better, because our position is more theologically informed than theirs. So it's important, really, to point out that, you know, Paul's primary audience in these chapters are actually those with the strong consciences. He's basically addressing them, and he is calling them unloving and puffed up with arrogance. So listen uh, uh, to chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So sure, those with stronger consciences, they may know better. We, we know it's not a sin. We know it's not addressed in the Bible. We know it's not an issue of right or wrong. But does that theological knowledge help us love better? Because that's what's more important. But unfortunately, as Paul points out, Christians with strong consciences have a tendency towards arrogance. Thank God I'm, I'm not like those hyper-conservative Christians. Thank God that, you know, I'm not such a prude. I'm not so uptight and narrow-minded like that guy. If any thought remotely similar to that has floated around in your head, then your strong conscience could very well have developed a spiritually prideful attitude. You might know better, but are you loving better? That leads to our fourth and final consideration when consciences clash. This is directed specifically towards those with stronger consciences because like we said, they're more in Paul's um, line of sight as he's giving these exhortations. This is the fourth consideration. We should consider the fullest extent of our Christian freedom. Paul already said the Corinthians can eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions of conscience, and your liberty shouldn't be determined by someone else's conscience. So that means as a Christian, whose conscience is informed by Scripture and submitted under the authority of Scripture, you are free to follow your conscience. You are free in Christ. You have freedom in Christ to do so. But is that a freedom where I can just do whatever I want and nobody can judge me? No, that's that's really the attitude of these Corinthians that Paul was trying to correct. In verse 23, he quotes what the Corinthians had previously written in their letter. In chapter 10, verse 23, he quotes them as saying, all things are lawful. That's their words. That's them arguing that they have knowledge, they have freedom in Christ, and so long as you're not dealing with something that violates Scripture, it's not a sin, well, then all things are lawful. Don't judge me. Paul's response is to show them how uh, to show them how, uh, that, that underst- how, that, how their understanding of Christian freedom 
is really short-sighted, and it's basically selfish. It fails to appreciate the full extent of our freedom in Christ. Listen with me to verses 23 to 24. This is chapter 10, verse 23. All things are lawful. He's quoting them, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So according to Paul, Christian freedom is not a focus on what you're free to do as you see fit, but on what frees you to build up others and to do them good. That's what you're now free to do. So when we think, when we think about this idea of having Christian freedom, I, I, I believe we, we assume it just means a freedom from being judged by other people. I'm free to live according to my conscience without you judging me, so long as I'm not violating Scripture, as long as I'm not committing a sin. But that just falls so short of what it really means to be free in Christ. It doesn't mean that you are free to seek your own good, to do whatever you want, so long as it's not a sin. I mean, friends, Christ, Christ didn't die for your sins to free you to live now a self-centered life where you use your freedom to serve yourself. That that was your condition before he died for us. We were all born enslaved to sin, enslaved to selfish tendencies without Christ. We are not free to seek the good of others because our selfishness always kicks in. But if you turn to Jesus, if you trust in him, you receive him by faith, you are then, you are then truly liberated. The enslaving power of sin is broken, and you're truly free. True Christian freedom means I am finally free to act in whatever way is needed to build up others, even if it means limiting and laying down my own freedoms. That's liberty. And Paul goes on to illustrate this idea, starting in verse 27. He says, If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But, here here it goes, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, well then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. So Paul, if, if he were in that scenario, and someone with a weak conscience were to lean over to him at the dinner table and, you know, and, and to tell him, you know where that came from, right? It came from the idol, the, you know, from the meat market in the temple. If that person would be offended and might stumble in his faith by, by seeing Paul, the Apostle Paul, eat food offered to idols, well then, in that scenario, Paul would gladly just pass the plate skip the dish. He doesn't need to eat it. Now, he's not changing his own convictions. If he was in private, he'd be, you know, gobbling it down. Paul's conscience on the issue is going to stay the same. He still thinks there's nothing wrong with eating meat from the meat market. But for the good of his neighbor, for the sake of that guy's conscience, Paul will lay down his rights in order to build up another's person's faith. So, If you think your conscience 
is fairly strong and it rarely bothers you because you've studied the scriptures and you know this issue is not a sin, well, then that's good. Praise God. Enjoy whatever it is with thankfulness to the Lord. But friends, part of what it means to live in Christian community, part of what it means to be in fellowship with other church members is to recognize that your conscience on certain issues may not necessarily match up with another person's. And your response to those with a weaker conscience should not be, hey, you know, they just need to loosen up. They need to subtract some things from their consciences. They need to be more theologically informed like us. You know, unless you're actually discipling that person, unless you actually have a deep enough relationship where you can help them calibrate their weak conscience, then your responsibility is not to correct them. Rather, out of love for your fellow brother and sister, your responsibility is to lay down your own freedoms to build them up. Friends, what's even more important than having a strong conscience is having a considerate, selfless heart that prioritizes the good of others and the glory of God. That's basically what Paul says in verse 31 to 33. Verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Here's another way of saying that same thing. Being free in Christ is not about what you're free to do, but what frees you to build others up. It's not about your freedom to do whatever you want, but magnifying God's glory in whatever you do. That's what this is about. So if your stance on a particular issue If it is theologically informed and your conscience is totally clean for you to participate in it, then do what you do with a thankful heart to God. But if God's glory is better served by you abstaining from certain things for the sake of others to help them not stumble and to build them up, then abstain cheerfully knowing that when you limit your freedom for for the glory of God, you demonstrate that God is far better than anything this world has to offer. That's why you're willing to give up this or that activity or this or that thing, because God is so much better, and I I still have him, so I'm going to give this up in order to love and build up others. This is the fullest extent of Christian freedom. It's when we place Christian charity over Christian freedom for the sake of others. And this really is the example that Christ left for us, isn't it? He limited his divine freedom. He laid down his divine rights. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross so that he could better love and build up others so that he could atone for sins and accomplish our salvation. In chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Because Jesus laid down his freedoms 
his rights, even his life, Paul had no problem laying down his own as he seeks the advantage of many, as he seeks their salvation. Can we say the same thing? Are, are we those who imitate Paul and imitate Christ, or are we those who insist that we have certain freedoms and rights, and people should just stop judging us? Church, be thankful that you are free in Christ, but even more so, be humble and loving, knowing that your freedom from sin is exactly what enables you to freely lay down your own freedoms for the good of other people. Father, thank you for this word that you give to us that is so relevant to the issues that we are dealing with in daily life, in church life. And so, Lord, we pray that your word will truly inform us, that your word will calibrate our consciences and that your spirit will give us hearts of humility and great love for each other, that we may truly act and live in such a way where we do not insist upon our own freedoms, but we are willing to imitate Christ in laying down our own for the sake of others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.